Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 299th edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting right across the world this week from beautiful Sydney Harbour in Australia. For our 300th show next week, we will be back in our studio in Hollywood, California, away from this bitter Sydney cold. Yesterday, I had the pleasure, I used to be an entertainer many years ago, and uh, I hope I'm still a little bit entertaining, Um, and... uh, Yesterday, there was a group in Sydney called the Debonairs, which is all of the entertainers over the last 80 years or so have got this group and they get together. There are people from um, showgirls from back in the 20s that are now in their 90s, right up to modern day artists. And I caught up with a friend of mine, Frank Ifield. Now, those Many of you who grew up in the 60s would remember Frank Ifield. He had uh, he was the first artist to have three number ones in the UK in a row. And his first tour of the UK, his support group was a group called the Beatles. So he has, he has the um, unique privilege of being having the Beatles as a support act. He actually recorded with the Beatles as well. He spent 142 weeks in the top 40. So Frank, who's now in his 80s and still working, just got back from a a tour of the UK and uh, very successful. He's my guest, special guest on the 300th show. Had a great time in Sydney, picked up a couple of new clients, caught up with a lot of old friends and uh, it's amazing after living in LA for 30 years when you catch up with friends even after all that time it's like you've never been away so um, this has been an okay trip now there's been discussion and consternation about robots taking workers jobs for a couple of hundred years now and as in the past the simple roll off the tongue solution is let's retrain and educate well Things are different now. Instead of just factory and assembly line workers being displaced, smarter robotics, AI and blockchain are now threatening all but a narrow range of jobs. We're no longer talking about the bottom 10%. We're now talking about possibly up to 70% of people displaced. Now, Business Insider tells the story of a worker at uh, a local branch of an auto repair chain who found himself in a hyper-competitive environment with too many applicants and too few jobs. And uh, all that can do is lead to um, low wages and a stressful workplace. So rather than scraping by at eight bucks an hour, he took a paid internship at the tech support centre of the Arlington, Virginia public school system And now 25, he's studying information technology at the community college and hunting for jobs in the D.C. area where there are loads of prospects. So the advice to pivot quickly and undertake training for a new profession, well, workers have been told that for decades. But um, 
you know, because there's lots of ways you can lose your job. It's not only um, being replaced by machines, it's being replaced by low-cost overseas workers and uh, possibility of a down economy. So to achieve retraining on a very large scale will require a government willing to invest tens of billions of dollars, probably hundreds of billions of dollars in education infrastructure and a safety net for workers as they try to make a change. It will also require businesses willing to pitch in and shoulder some of the cost. And with the uh, dramatic increase in the deficit in the US and the need to cut department budgets, this sort of investment seems very unlikely, despite the fact that ineffective worker adjustment policies undermine the economic recovery, lead to skills shortages for employers and will really hurt US competitiveness. Disruption from technology isn't a 21st century notion and job creation has continued even as technology has advanced. So the technology technological advances of recent decades, they're not, they haven't resulted in faster productivity growth. In fact, productivity over the last 10 years has decreased significantly. I'm not sure why that is, um, but it's it certainly, uh, there's a lot more disruption today than there ever was. And changes related to technology and trade have produced important shifts in the, in the structure of the economy. And it's hit some segment of the workforce much harder than others. Now, education is now a lifelong process and is increasingly a necessity rather than a luxury. And I know too many people, I read some figures that said something like 90% of management in the United States have never done any further learning after they left college, which is tragic and will become a disaster for them and their families in the future. Now, people have focused on cybersecurity and information technology as a way to guarantee solid, well-paying jobs have to constantly update their skills and certifications to remain current. So continuing education is now the norm for everyone in industry, in every industry. So it's going to mean a massive adjustment by the government by employers and the workforce has got to get off their ass and get out there and continue their education and and learn about things that are going to be productive in the future. All of the old, or a lot of the old trades no longer exist and uh, are going to get more and more rare. As you probably know, if you listen to this program, I live in the Hollywood Hills. It's the most exciting part of the world. Have you ever thought how exciting it would be if you were part of the motion picture scene, the Hollywood scene? Now, I'm the chairman of a company called Countdown Motion Pictures, and we've got a wonderful movie in the works, a real Cold War action thriller. It's sort of a cross between James Bond and Jason Bourne. It's a ripper, and we've got an exceptional cast and crew in place, but great movies are expensive to make, and we're looking for some additional funding. So if you've got some funds and you would like to invest in Hollywood, you can get to be part of the team, get credits in the movie, go to the Academy Awards, attend the launch, walk the red carpet, go to all the parties. It's fun. 
Now, if you'd like to know more about how you can take your place in the in the film industry, email me at bob, B-O-B, at bobpritchard.com. So that's bob at bobpritchard.com, and I'd love to get back in touch with you. Do you get my uh, daily 30-second read business newsletter? It goes out every morning to 1.7 million people. And uh, if you don't get it, I invite you to go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enroll for it. It's very easy. The aim of it is to just 30 seconds a day to read it, and it'll keep you up to date with all the business news that's important. Every day we tackle a different subject from advances in medicine to new apps to new technologies to subjects like Hyperloop and autonomous cars and blockchain and on and on. Every day it's different. And these are all subjects that you really should know about if you want to be successful in this global revolution. It's free. The information's invaluable. And all you have to do is go to bobpritchard.com and enroll for the newsletter. You won't regret it. And, of course, if you get it, and you don't love it, just cancel. But 1.7 million people go on every day, so they obviously love it. Now, let's talk about Trump's solar border wall for a minute. Now, it's estimated that um, the wall would generate between 2.6 and 8.4 gigawatts of electricity annually and would power somewhere between 220,000 and 650,000 average size homes annually. That's pretty good. The electricity production would be worth between 106 and $300 million a year. The reason for the discrepancy in, in how much it would produce is the size of the panels and etc. But um, apart from the multi-billion dollar cost construction of the wall, the solar installation will cost between $1.4 billion and $4.2 billion. And Trump wants the wall to be 40 to 50 feet high. So that's why there's such a discrepancy in the, in the range of power generated. Uh, Trump's serious about this and he's got major companies looking at it. And with the fabulous climate down on the Mexican border the um, system efficiency would be over 80%. Estimations of how much energy the border wall would actually produce depends on the size of the panels and the wall itself. But an Oregon-based solar installation firm called Elemental Energy calculated that a wall with 10-foot-high solar panels would generate approximately 8 gigawatt hours of electricity each day. So... And the U.S. southern border measures nearly 2,000 miles across four states. But only about half of that is on unobstructed land. So we can assume that there's probably 1,000 miles of wall. Trump maintains that the electricity produced would help pay for the wall itself. In fact, he said quite clearly, Mexico will pay for the wall. And Mexico has said quite clearly that it won't. <laughs> and uh, a ground-mounted solar array without trackers will likely cost a dollar per watt by 2020. 
according to the US Department of Energy. But as MIT Technology Review notes, that figure doesn't consider other costs like transmission lines to deliver the power, software to regulate the flow, etc. So today, the average price per watt's about $3. At $3 a watt, the solar array would total $4.2 billion. Now, that cost doesn't take into account the price of the wall's construction and maintenance, which other analysts believe it could be up to $2 trillion. At the Department of Homeland Security's estimate of the wall's construction at $21.6 billion, a solar-powered wall would eventually pay for itself. If it continues to produce, say, $200 million per year of electricity, it would take 100 years to break even. If Trump supplied and charged Mexico for 50% of the power, so take all the power that it generates, sell Mexico 50% of the power, Mexico would actually would pay for the wall, as Trump suggests. However, it would take somewhere over 200 years. Now, what's interesting about this is that, as you know, the Spanish component of the American population is increasing fairly dramatically. And in 50 years or so, Spanish heritage Americans will be more than 50% of the U.S. population. Now, when they're more than 50% of the U.S. population, it's reasonable to assume that a great number of the mayors and a great number of the members of the House of Representatives and a great number of senators will all be of Spanish heritage. Now, whether they decide to continue to pay for the wall is another thing. In fact, it could change the dynamic altogether. It wouldn't be beyond um, understanding for Spanish members of the legislatures to dismantle the wall altogether. So if Mexico does pay for the wall through a shared power arrangement, it will take 200 years and for one, I think that is highly unlikely. As I mentioned, next week is my 300th show. It's a hell of a lot of shows, hell of a lot of talking. Um, and my special guest is Frank Ifield, who the first person to have three number ones in a row in the UK, had the Beatles as a support group, really good guy. Terrific guy. I've known him for a long, long time, and he will be my guest next week. Now, my guest today is Tim Fargo, who's an entrepreneur. He's a, uh, an international keynote speaker and a best-selling author. He's presently, present, presently, presently serving as president and CEO at socialjukebox.com. I reckon that's one of the best names for a company of all time, Social Jukebox. That is phenomenal. And uh, Social Jukebox is an app that eliminates the need to continually schedule your posts and it manages all your content. And I'll be back with Tim after this short break on the Voice America 
Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Now, over the last five and a half, nearly six years, we've given you insights into the lives of over 300 of the world's most interesting business people. We've talked about what they do. And we try to find out what it is that makes them tick. You know, it's extremely difficult to create a successful business. And we all need to receive advice and assistance from those entrepreneurs who have achieved, achieved success before us. We certainly don't need to repeat the mistakes of others. So the aim of this segment is to give you the knowledge to address these fundamental issues and to assist you to become successful. My guest today is Tim Fargo. He's an entrepreneur, an international keynote speaker, and he's a best-selling author. He's presently serving as president and CEO at socialjukebox.com, a great name, I might add. I think that's, you know, that's one of the really good app names. And it's an app that eliminates the need to continually schedule your posts, and it manages your content. This is what I need, trying to, trying to juggle content for my newsletter every day and the radio show and everything else. It's a nightmare. And the apps received loads of media dimensions, including Inc., Forbes, and Social Media Examiner. Tim was the founder of Omega Insurance Services, an, investiga an investigative <laughs> firm. He started in an extra bedroom and sees later for $20 million. Tim, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard all around the world. Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. That was a, that was a very nice intro. I actually almost, I almost got impressed myself, but then I realized it was just me. <laughs> Where are you at the moment? I am in Rotswav, Poland. In Poland? What's the weather like there? Blustery. It's, uh, it's, it's about probably 14 degrees and, uh, and very windy. We, we just had a, a pretty warm spell and then we had a cold front hit, so now we're, it's a bit stormy. Right. But otherwise, 
Lovely. Not bad. Yeah, I'm, I'm spoiled living in Southern California for so long. I'm in Sydney at the moment, and it is cold. Well, cold for me anyway. Now, for our listeners that might not have heard about Social Jukebox, how does it work? Um, essentially, you put your content in, and each jukebox, so to speak, is a reservoir of content. So, for instance, somebody like you that's doing kind of you know broadcasting, um, <clears throat> you might have uh, your back catalog of um, shows and whatnot in one jukebox, and maybe you'd have some things that you, um, like maybe some blog posts you'd written in the past in another jukebox, because you maybe want to distribute those at different speeds. And then we have a thing called targeted posts, which is a more specific um, way to share content. And like if you had a new show, you'd put it there and then schedule it to transfer after a certain number of days. So essentially what it does is, if you wanted to create a media schedule, Right. You can automate that media schedule. So as you and then as you have new content, you can add it into the system. I mean, that's really the idea. I got it. Um, I had written a book, and that I mean, the whole product came out of. I got so sick of being on social media trying to promote the book. Yeah, I was like, I this is this, t- this, this is taking way too much of my time. So um, I ended up contacting a friend of mine. He built the product for me. Right. Um, and then I found out people were a lot more interested in my software than they were my book. So I was like, well, you know what? <laughs> Screw the book. Welcome to the software business. And uh, and the rest is history. So, <laughs> How did you come up with the name Social Jukebox? It's one of those two o'clock in the morning wow moments, was it? Yeah. I mean, well, it was a combination of wow and like basically going through a list of possible names, um, like first doing a ser- search on what domains are available. Which is almost um, none. <laughs> well, none with, you know, it's like, you know, my granny's social media distribution system.com. Yeah, none with um, any sizzle. Yeah, so, you know, you, you quickly eliminate a whole herd of names because they've been taken or parked or whatever. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, <clears throat> Lo and behold, it was available. We started out as Tweet Jukebox because in the beginning it was just Twitter, but now it's Twitter and Facebook everything, and LinkedIn. So, yeah, how, did, so. Tim, how did you become an entrepreneur? Did you pop out of college and go, aha, I want to be an entrepreneur? Screw the boss. Um, I think it was more, I mean, from when I was a kid, um, I was cutting grass and shoveling snow and running errands for neighbors. I mean, basically, I was a little bit of a mercenary. I mean, if you had some cash and you had something that was legal, I would do it. Um, <laughs> so, <clears throat> and, it, and it, because my dad was, and it was also partly because my dad was uh, pretty tough to get a dollar out of. Um, so, but anyhow, I, I think it was born out of, I really preferred... I mean, because I had like a, when I was maybe 15, 16, I actually had a job. Um, and I much preferred just, if I cut someone's grass, I could go there, get the job done, and then just like take off. Right. Um, so my, my hourly rate ended up being much better than working as some, you know, uh, minimum wage earner at some store or whatever, you know, typical kind of student jobs. Yeah, I, no, I understand. Um, so... What was the first challenge when you were 
when you went, what was your first, apart from cutting lawns and things, what was your first entrepreneurial role? What was the first thing you took on as an entrepreneur? <clears throat> um, I would say the stagger step, the intermediate step, where I really kind of got back into it with any degree of oomph was um, I tutored people all through college. And um, it started out as just like like a tiny bit. And then it turned into I was selling blocks of time. You could get a discount if you bought 10 hours. You could get a deeper discount if you bought 20 hours. And so, I mean, I actually was... I think my grades dipped a little bit because I was actually doing that so much. I mean, it was more like, obviously, it was solopreneuring. Yeah. But, um, and I went from that, and actually, this kind of segues into a, a great failure. Um, <clears throat> I decided, I had this idea to, um, this is when databases were new, right? right. I mean, it, they, sure. weren't, they weren't new, they weren't new, but PCs were new, and like having a database that was accessible to a normal human being was pretty new. Yeah. Um, so I had the idea um, based on, like when I had gone to the Career Center, it was horrible, it was like a horrible experience. So I thought, okay, I can have people put their resume into a database, and then I'll market to employers, and instead of them doing on-campus recruiting, they can contact me and I'll get them the resumes they want from whatever university. Sure. And, and um, I learned all kinds of lessons there. Um, lessons about the difficulty in introducing a new product. Uh, lessons about not knowing how to market a brand new product. Lessons in being undercapitalized. Um, because I burned, I mean, I had saved from tutoring and stuff. I'd saved about 20 grand and I burned through every dime of it yeah. um, with, with, very close to zero traction. Well, they're so. all the challenges, all the challenges that you mentioned, are challenges that, you know, I speak to entrepreneurs every day, and they're the same challenge every entrepreneur faces. Um, and they're difficult challenges. They're not, um, it's not easy to become successful if you're starting from scratch and, you know, there's a big world out there that's got to hear about you and it's damned hard to communicate. Well, but this is something that I think is really relevant to the audience. I mean, if, if people are somewhat agnostic, I'm pretty agnostic as to business type, which is how I did investigations and now I'm doing software. I mean, to me, like, I'm just interested in being in business. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but a lot of people, and especially a lot of young people I hear, oh, I, I want to, you know, I need a great idea. It's like, well, you know, look, take, a, take, a, take a page out of Richard Branson's book. I mean, he doesn't really do new businesses. He out-executes on existing ones. Yeah. And, um, and that's a much safer, much easier way to do things. I mean, that, and that was part of the problem with what I was doing. I mean, when I told people, like, you'll put your resume in a database, they had no idea what I was talking about in 1987. Sure. Um, so, you know, I think that's one of the challenges is, like, if you're going to do something, sometimes it's better to be a me too with a niche or a me too with better execution than to go, oh, I have this, like, even if you have, like, the most awesome idea in the world, I mean, like, the first internet browsers, I mean, they're all gone. Yeah. You know, I mean, so um, the people that are left standing don't necessarily tend to be the first to market. And I think. It, it maybe sounds sexy that you have a new idea, but it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder, in my opinion, to make it with a new idea than it is to out-execute on an existing one. Usually the um, 
it's not the first person in the markets that's successful. If you have a look across um, most of the um, um, new, so-called new businesses over the last 15 years or so, none of them were first to market. They all... Um, came into the market after someone else had done the hard yards. I, I worked for a, um, a multi-billionaire once um, as the marketing director and he used to say the one thing that you never want to do is get into the business of trying to educate the market. It's very expensive and somebody will come along and just pick up where you left off and be a success. And it's true. Right. Well, um, what's that? I don't know who originally coined this phrase, but, you know, the definition of a pioneer is a guy face down in a mud puddle with an arrow in his back. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I have never heard that before, but I'm going to use it from now on. (laughs) But but it's funny because people are like, oh, he's pioneering. It's like, yeah, great. Well, you know, there's an arrow destined for him Um, because I, I, I think it and it's. I mean, it's exactly what your um, you know former colleague said. I think people underestimate the difficulty. Like, if you say the word donut, everybody listening has an idea in their mind of what a donut is. Sure. You know, but if you come up with something brand new, forming that idea in their head isn't easy. And especially today, when there's so many, there's the market, like the channels of marketing and everything have become much more complex. Getting that information out has become even more difficult than before. I mean, it's easier to get into a marketing channel. I mean, because of social media, et cetera. But it's, but it's more difficult to be heard because there's a lot of noise out there. Yeah, so. yeah, and. and- it is extremely difficult to differentiate yourself today. I mean, it's always been hard and it's always been everybody's, um, you know, first thought is how do I differentiate myself? But today it really is getting more difficult because there's there's more and more um, weird, wonderful and wacky things out there to compete with. Absolutely. So I think one of the other issues with um, entrepreneurs that I find is that a hell of a lot of entrepreneurs want to get out there with their new product, <coughs> have it for 12 months, flog it to somebody for multi-millions of dollars, and go and lie on the beach somewhere and be fanned by beautiful girls feeding them grapes. Um, there's not as many people, not as many entrepreneurs that think, I want to get in this, I want to be in it for long, the long haul, I want to build and establish, you know, I want to build and establish a solid business. Um, people tend to be much more short-sighted in my in my experience. Well, I'd have to say that the real money, in, in my opinion anyhow, is the, the biggest challenge, because I agree with you, I mean, there's, I certainly enjoy the idea phase. The, the ideas and coming up with new stuff, that's much more fun and interesting. True. But the money is, the money is in execution. The money is in taking social jukebox and getting 100,000 more users. You know, the money is in <clears throat> getting your idea to become the dominant idea. I mean, Bezos had a great idea when Amazon was just a bookseller. Yeah. Right? But by staying in the game, and I mean, now they had an idea to share server space because they had such like surplus of server space because of building server farms. So now, I mean, their biggest business is the cloud, at least as a, on, a re- on a revenue basis. So, sure. I mean, when people think, oh, I want to have, 
all of this, I'm not saying it's not possible, but in my opinion, the real big returns tend to be from putting up with the boring slog of making something better. I mean, I spend every day dealing, I do all the support for Social Jukebox myself. Right. And one of the benefits of that is I get to see the product through the customer's eyes. So it's the boring slog of going through and checking what they're talking about and then tweaking and tweaking and making the product a little bit better, a little bit better. But when you do that, you don't necessarily see each day as some kind of revolution. But what you may end up with at the end of the year will be because you've managed to take the rough edges off the stone. So all of a sudden, you know, what looked like just a rough diamond before is now quite polished and nice just by virtue of being in the game, staying in the game, listening to your customers, iterating. I mean, so, you know, that's that's how you build momentum and build a base. I mean, I think there's a chance, you know, that people will make it, but uh, with these kind of short-sighted plans, but those are outliers. That's why they make the news. When somebody comes up with a new idea and it quickly gets bought for a zillion bucks, it's in the news because it never happens. Yeah, that's true. So, <laughs> but don't, don't you come down to work-life balance for, for most people because, you know, being Bezos <laughs> is one thing. You know, he's working 80 hours a week. He has been now for 30 years. He's not as young as he was anymore, and a hell of a lot of good parts of life have missed, passed him by. Sure, he's got $100, million, $100 billion, but at what cost? Well, I completely agree with that. Um, but I think the challenge is, like, like with my business, I mean, I'm, I'm very occupied, but last week... I was in um, Bologna and Portofino and uh, the Cinque Terre coast of Italy, and I'm back in Poland for a week. But I was working there, I mean, using my phone and, and, and my laptop, but I was still going out and doing things yeah. and having a great time. And then I came back here, and now I'm, I am doing more work because I'm back kind of at home, so to speak. Yeah. But uh, next, next week, I'll be in Sicily for a week goofing around and I mean I'll still do support and I'll still work on the product and I'll still interact with people but I mean I think you just have to make a conscious decision and perhaps that's actually the rub you know what we're talking about here about staying in the game yes if, if the idea is I'm going to work a hundred million you know I'm going to work the maximum number of hours and I'm going to do it for a year I mean that's not sustainable no it's not and and if you do find a buyer if you if you're working like nutty hours to the point where you know you're just like getting burned out, you're likely to make a horrible deal because you just want the thing out from around your neck. Yeah, that's but if you get gone. No, but if you have a business that's more sustainable, where you know you've built it with the idea of you know is this something I could like really want to do long term, you can stay in the business and build it properly. And if somebody wants to buy it you're not you're not going to feel compelled to get rid of it because you're so tired of dealing with it i think it's a conscious, it's a conscious decision though isn't it to give yourself time off like um you know i'm a speaker as well and you know i'm up around the 2000 odd speeches but we make sure that now that anybody that books us we stay in the place for four or five days you know you speak for an hour you have the other the rest of the time off we go exploring and we go you know do all the sites but that's a conscious decision you can't do as much work 
but you um, you probably enjoy it much more and therefore a better presenter at the end of the day, but don't make as much money. Well, but then, I mean, there's a question about, like even when I sold Omega, I mean, a lot of people were like, hey, if you stay in it, you'll make even more. I'm like, um, <laughs> there's only so much food I can eat. I can only be in one house at a time. I mean, I think people have this idea and you know, everyone's got to decide for themselves. But from my perspective, like they, there's these like posters, whatever, whoever dies with the most toys wins. And I couldn't disagree more. I think the more, sh- can I, anyhow, the more stuff you have. I don't give a fuck what you say. Yeah, the more shit you have. I mean, it's just an anchor. It's just an anchor. It's more stuff for you to worry about. It's more stuff for you to take care of. And, you know, I think it, there's far more to life just to be able to be satisfied with having enough to maintain a nice lifestyle. Sure. You don't need to, you know, and you certainly don't need billions to do that. No, that's true. So, uh, but, I mean, not even close. Of all the projects that you've been in and around and involved with, what is the biggest challenge, the number one challenge that most entrepreneurs face? Ooh, um, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different things at different phases. I mean, I think, you know, the one thing we alluded to in the beginning, I mean, when you're getting started is just having people even know that you exist. Yep. Um, you know, because it, it'll be very much at the forefront of your mind, but it may not be at the forefront of anyone else's. <laughs> That's right. Um, and you can it won't be. So, but so you have that, you know, I mean, in the first stage, you have kind of the awareness issue. And, but then as I think as things go on, it's, and this is just from my own experience, I think that, that there's a huge temptation to branch off into stuff you know nothing about. And you see it happen in companies all the time. You can tell like the founder or the owner has gotten bored and it's like, when I when when I ran Omega, people were like, "Oh, we could do this kind of investigation because we just did insurance fraud surveillance. That was it." Right. And people say, "Oh, well, we could do domestic investigations like cheating spouses." I'm like, "Yeah, well, we could probably make money selling socks, but that doesn't make a great idea." Yeah. Um, and by staying focused in one thing, we knew a lot about and we had processes for, we were able to grow faster and cleaner. But of course, there were times where you just get really bored with doing that. And I think that's probably one of those, like the siren song, kind of how entrepreneurs end up on the rocks. I think you start extrapolating your talent set or your skill set to that you're going to be good at everything. So you start doing stuff you don't know anything about. Yep. And then all of a sudden you go, hey, what happened to the business? <laughs> yeah. Good idea is to stick to your knitting, as they used to say. Um, yeah. Have you had to chase money to... Um drive some of these businesses fortunately not um i've i mean the the only at omega we had a bank line but i mean those we were fortunate in that when we were looking for money um credit was i wouldn't say it was like easy i mean we had to do a little poking around but um but we you know like i mean these stories I hear about people going out and doing road shows and raising equity and I never did anything like that. That's hard yakka. It is and it's soul destroying too because you're out there pushing your idea which you're very proud of and person after person after person says no I don't think so. Um, But unfortunately today it's necessary because you can burn through money very quickly. 
Well, I would say though that there's a there's there may be something to be said for because I get people that like approach me all the time. They're like, oh, you know, I need money to start a business. I'm like, if you're brand new, why don't you start? Why don't you get your chops? by doing something, like I said, like take an existing business and figure out how to run something that already exists before you like go off on a new idea and if, with your first business, I mean, don't stack the odds against yourself. Um, and there's, cause there's a ton of businesses, especially today with all the like software as a service, renting space in the cloud. I mean, there's a lot of businesses today where you can get started without a ton of capital. Um, you got to be a little more clever about it, but you can you can skate with a lot less money today um, than you did before. And if it's a good idea, if it truly is an idea that's going to get traction, then you ought to be able to see that relatively early um, where you can get at least kind of Raymond Noodle profitability. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but if you can't get that, I mean, if you if the only way for your idea to work is to be a multi-billion dollar idea, then, you know, you probably have a problem. You certainly have a problem. Okay, people talk a lot about hustle. Yeah, I look back on my life, I think I've been hustling all my business life. But how is hustle a key element of success? Well, this is a, a, like a touch point with me because it gets talked about so much and I, I absolutely hate that word. Um, and I hate it for a reason because I... I associate it with people who claim to be super busy. Oh, yeah, I'm hustling, man. I'm doing all this stuff. Just because you're busy doesn't mean you're getting shit done. It just means that you're a, a guy who's drowning is really, really busy. <laughs> he's, he's, he's very busy and he's about to die. Um, so, I mean, the idea that more activity is going to salvage you is really false. And I... And I hear when I hear the kind of this sort of devotion to the idea of being hyper busy. Look, I lived in Sweden for a few years and I can tell you that their desire to make sure they have like a decent family life. I mean, they're very focused on doing things that matter. Yeah. And I think there's a lot to be said for the approach of, you know, activity doesn't equal results. And, you know, if you stand back and look at where can I do something that will move my business forward. You, there's no question, you have to work. Yes. I mean, I haven't found a business yet where you know you just like turn the key and it just like drives off on its own. But the idea that, it, that the only way you're gonna make it is by being constantly, frantically busy. I mean, there's two things. One, I don't think that's true. And two, to your earlier point about lifestyle, I think you're, you're you may you may end up making some money, but I think you're going to be miserable because if the, if the only thing you're ever doing is running around chasing your business, I mean, what kind of life is that? I agree. Now, how long were you involved with Omega? Just under seven years. And it grew very quickly. So what allowed it to, to grow so quickly? Were you just um, in the right place at the right time or did you have to knock off a lot of competitors along the way or were you just smarter than the average duck? Well, um, in the land of the blind... You can say the latter if you wish. No, but in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Um, And I think this is, again, look, there were a zillion people, and there continue to be a zillion people in the investigative business. It's a business that requires very little startup capital. In many places in America, you don't even need a license. Or if you do need a license, the 
the just gargantuan hurdle to getting a license is that you've never been convicted of a felony. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> you know, that setting the bar is super high. Um, so, you know, it's super easy to get into, but just because there's a lot of people in a business doesn't necessarily mean that that's a tough business. It just means there's a lot of participants. Right. And so, I mean, you know, if you go to a running race, but everyone else has one leg and you have two, um, you've got pretty good odds. And um, I would say that in a lot of ways, that was the case with that business is it was um, if you know the book, The E-Myth, yes. there were a lot of there are a lot of people in the investigative business that have a background in law enforcement. Um, and so they're very good investigators. But that doesn't mean they're very good at building an infrastructure for a business. So we were, sorry, yeah. But so, so anyhow, we were able to like by being better business people, we were able to build processes and, and build a business that was more than just one guy doing great investigative work. So, do you, how did you differentiate yourself, um, or did you just allow the fact that you were so good at business and so? Um, technologically proficient or whatever to to carry the day for you well i think in the beginning i mean because what does carry the business is ultimately they want to see that you've got good investigative chops so we needed to make sure we had that but very quickly the way we ensured that continued as we grew was by having like really good processes and Because my, the metaphor I always use is, you know, I mean, if you get a Big Mac in Tokyo or you get a Big Mac in Shanghai or you get a Big Mac in London or in San Diego, they all taste the same. Yes. Now, you can dispute all day long or discuss all day long whether it tastes good or not, but, but they do taste the same. But that's the, that's the result of very, very stringent processes around how the thing is made and the, and the, and the components that it's made from. And I think if you you can you can put that into any service, and by doing that, we came up with a fairly narrow bandwidth of quality um, in terms of what got done when we did an investigation for you. So that level of reassurance. I mean, we maybe weren't the best investigator on every single case, but if you if you gave us a job, you could have a fairly high degree of certainty that. The, the job got done. Maybe there was someone who could do it marginally better, but probably wasn't worth looking around to find him. So was your growth mainly word of mouth or did you have to flog the shit out of it? We flogged the shit out of it. Um, it always works. Bit, <laughs> well, but, but I mean, uh, that business, like insurance, at least at the time, insurance adjusters were making most of the assignments. So, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, kissing babies and, you know, going to trade shows and meeting these people and being in their pocket on an ongoing basis to like talk to them about, you know, do they have any work for us? So, and that was probably one of the other big things that helped us grow is we just were very good at finding good salespeople and training them. So where does um, social jukebox go from here? Wow, that's a good question. Um, you know, I'm... <sighs> We, we started as Tweet Jukebox. We started out, when we went to a paid version, we had just over 500 clients, and now you know we've got closer to 2,000. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm doing things to continue to grow it, but I can't honestly say I'm not super energized to make it into some gargantuan thing because I kind of like being 
like having my hands around the whole thing. Sure. And part of that's because I've got money in the bank from Omega, right? Yeah. Um, but it still provides me a very nice living, and I can do it from anywhere. I'm engaged. I enjoy it. So, I don't. I'm, I, I of course. I mean, I'd love it to grow, but I. I, I don't know that I'm necessarily um, hyper driven to turn it into some kind of like gigantosauric machine. Okay, so where does Tim Fargo go from here? I'm having a great time just traveling, running my business, and hanging out with my kids. I mean, I really am. You yeah. know, I'd love to say like, well, you know, the next phase is going to be I'm going to build a rocket ship and we're going to go to Saturn. <laughs> um, I think somebody's but already that's trying just, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not my cup of tea. Um, I mean, everyone's got like they what they want to do and no one can kind of decide for someone else. But for me, my kids, my I have triplets and they just got out of high school, so... I'm kind of busy helping them get the trajectory they want on their own lives, and I'm glad to have the time to be able to do that. (laughs) Well, but the thing I want to make sure I do, I mean, that's a fair goal is to get them doing that, but I think an even better goal is to make sure that whatever they get into is something they want to stay at and that will provide a living for them. Because if it doesn't, I may need to. So, <laughs> Tim, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, you can learn more about Social Jukebox and Tim Fargo at socialjukebox, exactly as it sounds, dot com. That's socialjukebox.com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Channel. And we are very proud of the fact that we're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And this week, broadcasting from the shores of beautiful Sydney Harbour, where it's been absolutely freezing. Don't forget my 300th show next week with my special guest, Frank Ifield, who, um, when he was touring back in the 1960s, He had four number one hits, three of them in a row. And his support act on his tour was a group called The Beatles. And uh, I caught up with him again yesterday after, well, I've I've seen him a few times over the years, but he's a great guy and uh, a fantastic career. And he'll be on next week's show. Now we've got a good news story. In 1951, the Centre for cerebral palsy was opened by a group of parents who wanted to generate a better life for their children. 60 years later, the organisation has grown to over, I think, a thousand staff and it now seeks to help people with a range of needs including therapy, housing, equipment services, community inclusion, home care and much, much more. Technological innovation has been central to the growth of this non-profit organization which now calls itself 
the ability centre. Their youngest customers are young babies. The oldest are in their 80s. They exist to enable people to realise their abilities and to assist them to be self-sustaining in employment. So they are supporting thousands of people every day with all types of disabilities. And the benefits of innovative technology for people with disability are pretty much endless. Now, the Ability Centre came together with six corporations recently from all sorts of industries to try and solve specific business problems. They went on an experimental journey which applied design thinking principles to business problems. Highly interactive, fast-paced and fun with a number of experts coming in to help build prototypes to solve customer pain points. The solutions that they developed through this period with working with corporations and experts were quite amazing. And the Ability Centre now has its own innovation hub that focuses on service redesign that aims to be beneficial for the entire business and their customers. Well, I love this story. Congratulations to all involved. This is a project that is really changing lives. So to the Ability Centre and the thousand people that work there, fantastic effort. Keep it going. It's brilliant. Now, how would you like to eat nutritious foods and just pay what you can? At Philadelphia's Eat Cafe, patrons can pay whatever they want or pay nothing at all if they don't want. At the Eat Restaurant or the Eat Cafe, the cafe only give diners suggested prices to pay. So the amount you actually pay is totally up to you. You can pay more, you can pay less, or you can pay nothing at all. The strategy is based on the community cafe model where there's a mix of people who can pay more and there's a number of people who can pay nothing. So in the end, it balances out. The pay what you wish establishment aims to alleviate hunger and close a nutrition gap in West Philadelphia, where about a quarter of the people don't have access to healthy meals. So a three-course meal, which includes a super salad, an entree such as Cuban black beans and braised chicken or pork with sides, and then a dessert like flan cheesecake and a beverage, well, cost only a suggested 15 bucks if you want to pay. Or you can pay 20, or you can pay nothing at all. So Eat Cafe sources ingredients from farmers who grow cops within a 150-mile radius of Philadelphia, and uh, the restaurant gets food donated from grocers like ShopRite, Whole Foods, and Trader Joe's. Grocery chain giant food also provides daily donations of items that would normally go to waste, as well as a car to help the staff pick up food from other partners. What a fantastic idea. Eat Cafe will sustain its pay-as-you-wish system, primarily thanks to grants from corporate sponsors. Plus, there's a number of generous diners who choose to pay more, and that helps to cover the costs for those who pay less or nothing. The goal of the cafe is to make sure that everyone who comes in has a nutritious meal, whether or not they can afford to pay for it. 
functions like a normal restaurant, seating 30 diners at a time, who receive a check at the end of their meals. Only the server and the patron knows how much the diner pays, so they're not embarrassed. Now, the, uh, the owner of the restaurant, Donald Jones Craven, says he wants people to have the opportunity to fulfil each other's needs for community, real community, share experiences, embrace differences, and have dignity and respect amongst all. Because, you know, the truth is that we all need each other. Donald Jones Craven, you are a gem doing great things and the community really needs it and really appreciates it. So if you're in the Philadelphia area, chip in and help because this is a very worthwhile cause. Don't forget to get my weekly newsletter, daily newsletter, sorry. Um, I hope you get it. I hope you enjoy it. It's a pain in the ass to write. It takes me about one and a half days a week to write the five newsletters. And I'd hate to think I was spending a day and a half of my week every week without it being of benefit to people. So if you if you don't get it and you'd like to get it, go to my website, which is bobpritchard.com and simply subscribe. It's very easy. And within a couple of days, you'll start receiving it. We cover pretty much every topic there is to cover that's that's about business. And uh, so if you'd like to receive it, it's well worth it. You can impress everybody around you with how much you know about a whole range of subjects. If you read every daily newsletter for the, for the past, say, 12 months, you'd be the most learned person on the planet. You would have such a phenomenal volume of knowledge about everything that you would be a superstar. So never too late to subscribe. So go to bobpritchard.com and subscribe. Now remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Any bastard can do the ordinary. That's easy. You don't want to be ordinary. It's better to aim for the stars and miss than it is to aim for the gutter and succeed. Too many of us aim for the gutter. And if you're always trying to be normal, you'll never know how amazing you can be or how phenomenal you'll feel when you achieve something great. Now, I hope you, can have, a sen- I hope you have a sensational week and I hope you can join me ne- again next Tuesday for my 300th show with my special guest, super recording star, multi-million record sales, and once had the Beatles as a support act, Frank Ifill. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.